What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today I'm super excited for you all to hear this conversation because it's about one of my favorite books of 2022 from one of my favorite authors. So today my guest is none other than Seth Stevens Davidowitz. All right. So check it out. Seth, if you didn't know, is a former data scientist, I believe for Google and his previous book is called Everybody Lies. And that book just blew my mind. And it also kind of messed me up a little bit, which is what I, I actually talked with Seth about it a little bit in this, uh, this conversation, because his book, Everybody Lies is kind of like Seth's thing. And what he does is he combs through a ton of data and kind of breaks these like, you know, different, different pieces of like conventional wisdom that we have, things that we think we know. And in Everybody Lies, he goes through like a bunch of like Google Trends data, what people are searching for. And, you know, he he's able to pull different things like, and it's it's like, what, right? <laughs> so we had to start questioning everything. And it made me a lot more skeptical whenever I come, uh, come across like uh, news, research, studies, uh, data, like polls, all sorts of stuff. So if you haven't yet, make sure you check out his previous book, but he's uh, here today to talk about his brand new book titled Never Trust Your Gut. And I am not over-exaggerating when I say it's one of probably my top three favorite books of the year. I've been so, so bored with books lately. And when I picked his book up, I couldn't put it down because it was finally something new. And Seth is just so amazing at doing that. So this book, uh, it's a little bit different than the previous book. It's more like leaning towards like self help. All right. So some of the topics that, you know, we discuss and that are covered in the book are like things like parenting, right? If you're a parent like myself, we're always asking, you know, uh, what's the best way to raise your child? What is going to set them up for success? Is it the school? Is it the neighborhood? Is it extracurriculars? Right. And there's a lot of things we think we know, but based on, you know, what Seth has found through various studies, different data, you know, he shows that maybe what we thought was the best for, you know, raising a child isn't, you know, what we originally thought. He also covers things like relationships, like what makes people happy, what we should actually be looking for in a potential partner. You know, this was something that it took me a long time to learn. So I really hope young people read this, but my favorite part of this book is, uh, his chapters on like success and luck, because that's a topic that I'm very, very interested in. Some of you heard my episode with Robert Frank, the economist who wrote the book, Success and Luck. And yeah, I, I love that Seth covered this because it, it even kind of helped me dial back some of my like, hey, it's all luck. Who cares? Just try and be kind of nihilistic about it. But Seth actually points quite a few patterns out that we can pull to increase the probability of luck working in our favor. So I love that. But as far as my favorite part of this conversation is, you know, I, I have like a different view on self-help than a lot of people, but Seth and I were on the same page because Seth is a data scientist. If anybody looks at uh, something with kind of a skeptical eye or is like, ah, this is probably not legit. It's going to be Seth, but he loves self-help books. And we discuss how there's kind of a stigma around self-help. So we have a conversation about, you know, our personal experiences with depression and self-help books and why people should give them a little bit more credit. So I love chatting with them about that. But yeah, um, make sure you head down to the description, make sure you're following Seth and grab a copy of this book. Never Trust Your Gut is out now. And I, I promise that you will love it. It is so damn 
good. All right. But before we jump into the conversation, if you're not yet, make sure to follow me over on social media. It's at the rewired soul on Instagram and Twitter. And you'll probably want to follow me on YouTube too, uh, because I'm about to start posting a bit more over there. But anyways, follow me on Instagram and Twitter, because I love chatting with all of you guys. Like, as I mentioned, I've been getting really bored with books lately, and you all have been killing it with the book recommendations you've been sending over. So I, I love that. But also, that way you don't miss anything uh, that I post, any updates or anything like that. For example, I've been writing a ton lately, so that way you don't miss any of the new uh, pieces I'm writing over on Substack or anywhere else. So make sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. And the last thing is, Next week, uh, I don't like to overblow things, but I have like a semi-big announcement, so you don't want to miss that. If you're following me, you won't, all right? I will be uploading an episode where that announcement will be, though, so if you're subscribed, which you should be, you'll hear it there as well, all right? Anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Seth Stevens Davidowitz about his brand new book, Never Trust Your Gut. Hello, Seth. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. I binged the new book, loved it oh so much, didn't even know it was coming out, so it was a pleasant surprise. But before we dive into Don't Trust Your Gut, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. For those who might not know you, a little bit of your background and what you do. Yeah, so uh, I was originally an economist and... Uh, I kind of switched to data science. Now I consider myself a data scientist. Uh, and I wrote this book, Everybody Lies. Uh, and it's about how you can't really trust what people tell you. But you it, 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 even the traditional anonymous surveys that researchers have used for the last 80 years to understand what people are thinking, what they're going to do, why they do the things they do. And uh, Everybody Lies kind of did well. I thought it was all I had to say. <laughs> I, I, I think in the conclusion, I said, that's my magnum opus. I'm like, you know, I figure it was kind of, uh, the end of my writing, uh, career. Uh, cause I, I put it, you know, a lot of my heart and soul into that book, but, uh, don't trust your gut. I kind of, <laughs> I said, I, I, I thought it was over. And then I can't, I came with this idea that I was going to write a self-help book. And there are many motivations for it, which I mean, I don't know if you want to get into it now or we can get into yeah, it, go for it later, but <laughs> that I always change the story on what the motivation <laughs> is, but I, I think was, I think, I think there are multiple motivations, but one of them is I just love self-help, mm. uh, which is a little weird. It's embarrassing. It's considered a little embarrassing for an intellectual to be into self-help. You kind of like, you know, I, all those books, 48 laws of power, I, mm -hmm. Eight habits of highly effective people, four hour work week. Like I, I read them all. Yeah. Uh, and, and as an intellectual, you're not supposed to read that. You're supposed to read history, philosophy, political theory, not self help. Yeah. When I read these self help books, I'm kind of like, they're not very convincing in that mm -hmm. they don't, they're not really based on evidence. They tell a story or they, when they quote a study, they just, they, most people, the way they write a self help book is they, have a point they want to make, and then they search for a study that makes that point. Yeah. And you can find a study itself tell you any point. Like, yeah. uh, 
you know, coffee's good, good for you. Coffee's bad for you. Use timeouts on your kids. Don't use timeouts on your kids. Uh, so you kind of have this theory, you tell a story, and then you just, you know, Google or go on Google Scholar and try to find a study that uh, defends it. And, and I really didn't, didn't do that with this book. This book was, I, when I started this book, I had no idea what I was going to say. I, mm. I was just like, I'm going to offer self-help based on big, based on the best data science around on some of these big questions, uh, you know, so dating and parenting and mm -hmm. entrepreneurship and happiness and other topics. And I just read, I'm not exaggerating. I, I read thousands of studies, uh, yeah. in, in re researching this paper and most of them, I re researching this book and most of them, I, you know, I, I read it and I just said, this is, I, I don't believe the study. It's not convincing to me mm. and I ignored it. Uh, and I didn't include my book, but occasionally I came across a study or a research project where I'm like, wow, I didn't know about that. And that is really, really useful mm. for understanding this topic. And that's what was left, uh, the studies that, that I thought were groundbreaking and revolutionary. And I had known, so kind of when I finished this book, I'm like, I understand the world a lot better than I did yeah. before I wrote this book, which is good. And I hope mm -hmm. that other people have a similar experience. That's kind of my goal. Just, okay, I, you'll understand the world better. Uh, and in a, in a way that's helpful for navigating it and making kind of the big decisions you have to make, you have, yeah. you'll have more clarity about, uh, about the worlds after having read the book, I hope. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's crazy hearing you, uh, talk about like your views on self-help and all that, because like we're on the same page there. Like that's, yeah. that's kind of how my reading started. I was big. I, I got sober that I got into like mental health books and, uh, self-help books and all these other things. But, uh, you know, I often say like books like yours and all the books I read on like, you know, skepticism or just understanding like the science, like Stuart Ritchie, he's been on the podcast with like science fictions or like, uh, Jesse Signal's book about, uh, you know, pop psychology. So now I'm always looking at these studies. I'm like, is this one bullshit? Like, you know, like what's this face out of it? But I've noticed what, what you're talking about is they make a claim and then they find the study or even worse, they'll find an anecdote, right? They'll be like, well, look, there's Steve Jobs. He did this. So now everybody should do it. And, and yeah, so that's one of the reasons I love this book because, uh, you know, I got sober through 12 step programs and there's a lot of criticisms and everything. But as I started learning more about the science, I'm like, well, there's certain things that you can kind of like point to that are aspects, even though it's not like technically in the program. So you kind of see it. And that's like kind of how I saw your book is that you pulled in different studies that are rooted in evidence and saying like, hey, some of this stuff is proven. It can work. And I think it also helps you avoid things that might be wasting your time. Right. Like, uh, is that something that you've done or have been concerned with other people doing is following one of these like kind of bogus studies, like and letting yeah. it guide their life? You know what I mean? A lot of them. So parenting, it's a huge problem. Oh, yeah. Uh, Emily Oster has written these great uh, substacks and essays. And you find out where did uh, parenting advice come from? So now all parents are supposed to tell their kids, you did a good, you tried hard, but not that you did a good job. So don't worry about the outcome. Uh, and it's, and Emily Oster dug into where this advice comes from. And it's one research paper from 20 years ago with a sample size of about 40. Oh, and wow. probably not reproducible and probably wasn't saying what the parenting advice, you know, the, the parent, uh, the parenting 
industrial complex probably butchered this study. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's definitely something I, I really tried hard not to do that where I, I think another thing is when you write a book, the first thing everybody says, so one of the top questions, I'm, I'm glad you didn't ask, uh, ask me this question is what shocked you the most? Mm. And I think there's so much pressure to shock people. Yeah. And usually when something shocks you, it's just not true. There's a reason it's shocking because it's not true. And definitely <laughs> in, in this research, there were things that surprised me and that I might not have guessed. So I talk about how the typical rich American is the owner of an auto dealership or beverage distributor. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. That surprised me. I talk about the typical age of an successful entrepreneur is 45 and that the chances of creating a successful business increase up until the age of 60. That surprised me. But they didn't shock me in that I need to, you know, my total understanding of how human behavior works is revolutionized yeah. by understanding those, uh, by, by reading those studies or under or learning those facts. And I think that's very important to avoid the temptation to shock people because it's, it's all anybody wants. Shock me, shock me, shock me, shock yeah. me. And I could find a study that's shocking and it's just not going to be true. Yeah. You know, there, there are plenty of studies, you know, that, uh, that, 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 yeah, there are plenty. There are plenty of studies that have something, you know, shockingly counterintuitive, and then they never reproduce. Mm -hmm. Whereas the way I wrote this book is, I just found studies where the methodology was totally convincing, and then I just said, okay, well, now I know you have great methodologies. Now I'm just going to write whatever you find. <laughs> yeah, uh, like so an example. An example of that is the Samantha Jolin co-authored study of what predicts a happy marriage mm. or happy relationship, which I talk about in chapter one, and it's and. They studied 11, more than 11,000 couples, which is just, and they have hundreds of, of variables on them. Anything you could think to ask. So mm -hmm. I'm like, when I read the study, I didn't even know, I didn't know what they found, found but I said, I'm going to write about this study because this is better than all the other mm. studies. And whatever they find is more credible than anything that came before because they were using a much more extensive data set than anybody. Yeah. So, and, and either way, it's, it's interesting. And this is, in my opinion, the best, evidence we have at this point in human history in 2022 of what predicts a happy rel uh, relationship is this study from 80 uh, from 86 scientists hundreds of variables on more than 11,000 couples yeah uh, yeah like uh I was just saying that too because uh when you're when you're you were talking earlier I was wondering I was like well when you're going through these studies like how do you how do you avoid your own biases and I think just what you said right now is is a great method, right? Like find something with the best methodology and then just look at that, right? Not look at results or look for like headlines because even even scientific papers, sometimes they like sensationalize the headline, you know, because everybody's trying to get published and get their study out there and, and all of that. So that, that's really interesting. But, but with what you're talking about too, and this, I think I tweeted about this at some point, right? Reading the book, but, uh, and I'm sure you've noticed this, so I'm curious your thoughts. It seems like as people, you know, like we are just really fascinated by like a good story, right? Like uh, Nassim Taleb, he talks about like the narrative fallacy and all that. But like, yeah, when you're talking about like entrepreneurship and who the richest people are or successful people or, you know, successful relationships, like it's just boring as hell, right? Like it's just the most basic stuff. And, 
And, you know, I wonder, I'm always wondering, I'm like, is that like an us issue? Like, is it bottom up that we need to work on that? Or is it top down, right? Are we being told that these are the fascinating ones? And is it just, you know, when we point out like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Elon Musk or whatever, because it sounds great, right? Like, oh, Steve Jobs, he dropped out of, he dropped out of school and he like did shrooms and didn't wear shoes. This is what you got to do, right? So do you think this is part of human nature that we want those kind of uplifting underdog stories or or is it kind of like the world training us to want those stories you know yeah i think it's probably baked into human nature to mm -hmm. a large degree uh certain certain things make more more compelling stories and other but others but i kind of find it a, a, a fun challenge to say can you write story can you write compelling uh text about older entrepreneurs or beverage distributors uh, or topics that, you know, or facts or topics that aren't, uh, naturally as good a story, but could be, but could be interesting. And, uh, you know, that was kind of a, a challenge in the book yeah. to not just, yeah, I, again, there's this nonfiction formula where you tell some crazy story, then you find some study that's probably pretty shoddy to defend the story. And then yeah. you draw a lesson from that and, uh, it does sell a lot. So maybe I should, I should have done that. And, uh, I'd have to see the data on that, Yeah. but I just, I don't like that approach and yeah. I wanted to try something different. So I really did try to avoid that tendency to, yeah. uh, yeah, tell these, these, you know, wacky stories that aren't telling, aren't actually teaching you anything. Yeah. About the world. Cause I think it, people make bad decisions based on that. I mean, how do people, I, I, there are actually studies after the social network came out and told the story of 19 year old mm. Mark Zuckerberg creating Facebook, there was a huge rise in teenage entrepreneurship, even though teenage entrepreneurship is a horrible idea. So people yeah. see that movie, they hear the Zuckerberg story and they say, well, I'm going to drop out of college and start my own business. Well, no, that's a terrible idea. That's a, yeah not a path to success just because Zuckerberg happened to do it, uh, doesn't actually mean it's a, it's a reliable path to success. So yeah, I, I kinda, I just feel like it's important to really understand this data. Uh, otherwise we could really screw up our lives by <laughs> yeah. uh, trying to copy these people that, yeah. And, and yeah, you know, the Susie Baptiste story of, uh, the woman who created, uh, poopery that I talked oh, about. Oh yeah, that was, yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. She, she had no training in chemistry or anything relevant. She decided she was going to create a chemical compound that would fight the odor, feces odor. Yeah. And she, it worked. She's now worth hundreds of millions of dollars, but you know, there's a New Yorker article about her and she was on the today show and everyone loves this story, but it's just, it's so rare. Like, that's not how success works. You don't yeah. just come up with an idea and that with no training and try something and it works. It, it's many years of it's slow and more boring. And yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. It's, 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 it's yeah. just interesting to, I just want people to have more accurate view of life and right. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's like, something I feel like I'm constantly trying to like, 
tell people like don't you want to like know the truth right yeah. not like what's like surprising and all that but but as you talk about like the the zuckerberg story it doesn't even seem like maybe i don't know if people just didn't know about the data of like all these people going out and like throwing money at these young kids because recently my girlfriend and i we've been obsessed with watching like uh those uh like docu-series about like um uh like we work or theranos right and like as we're watching it i'm like what part of you thought that, you know, you're just, just throwing tons of money at these young people who don't have really much experience, but there was like this whole, you know, but it also seems like that might be part of like Silicon Valley type nature, right? Like yeah. the move fast and break things. Like, so the crazier the idea is like, oh, this must be the good one rather than looking at this. But, you know, that actually brings me to one of my favorite topics in your book, just because it's one of my favorite topics in general, which is about success, right? So there's often like this, uh, this halo effect where we think, oh, this person's successful. Therefore they're like smart in all these other realms. They're going to do good. Like how much, um, how much of these, like, like, you know, the billionaires or these really like top tier stories of people do you think is luck versus success? Like you talk about that in the book, like with Airbnb, but how many of these are like, you know, that if I, if I ran the simulation a thousand times, right, this person would still be successful. You know what yeah. I mean? I think we don't have a perfect answer to that question. There are many, there are many complications. How do you define luck? Is luck given mm. being given genetics to be really smart? Uh, is luck coming from a privileged background? Uh, there, there are many dimensions of luck. I think that we probably, these days we can, there, there are, so what, there's kind of a subtle point, which is the most successful particular outcome will have a ton of luck in it, involved in it. So, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you look at Airbnb story, which is told in Lee Gallier's book. There are all these crazy lucky breaks of meeting the right person at the right time and, uh, you know, getting extensions on deadlines where their yeah. business could have been killed otherwise. But one thing that you have to keep in mind is you're supposed to get a few lucky breaks over the course of your life. So if a human being got zero lucky breaks, if you never met a person who could help you or never gotten an extension on a deadline or never, uh, read about something that could be useful to you, you'd be the unluckiest human being in human history. <laughs> yeah. Like that would be like, you're going to get over the course of lifetime of some, some lucky breaks now that, and a lot of it is taking advantage of lucky breaks. And then there, the other thing is you can do things to increase your, uh, what Sahio Bloom calls your luck surface area. Mm. So for example, uh, Sam Brayberger and co-authors did this study of successful painters and they found that what separated the successful painters and the unsuccessful painters, and the biggest predictor was how they presented their work. So they, the unsuccessful painters just presented their work at the same gallery over and over again and kind of hope someone found them. Mm -hmm. And the successful painters traveled like bumblebees around the world. Any break, any person that invited them, they went. And then eventually they'd stumble without even realizing it on a gallery that tends to give people breaks and they go into the yeah. stratosphere. So they got lucky, you know, the particular break was lucky, but 
it was in uh it was a, a luck creating strategy that they had. And so so that luck or not luck, I'd say it's probably not luck yeah. because it's 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 uh hustling. You hustle yeah. your way to luck. And even just uh another strategy for uh, increasing your luck service area is just putting a lot of out there in the world and letting luck find you. So there, there've been studies of artists, the more quantity they put out in the world, the more they are, the, the more quality they get, the more they're, they're they, famous they get, the more success they have. And I think, uh, a lot of people don't put their work in the world. And if you don't put the work in the world, you're not going to get lucky. That's also true in dating. Yeah. Uh, where there is, uh, you need to ask a lot of people out to get lucky. So yeah. you're, you're, uh, I, I, I there've been these studies, they ranked people on desirability in different ways. Sometimes it's, they rank people's beauty one to 10. Uh, some people, sometimes they're more complicated formulas, but then they say, what happens when someone at the bottom of the desirability hierarchy at, sends a message in an online dating site, someone at the top of the desirability hierarchy? hierarchy and when a man does this heterosexual man does this to a heterosexual woman what are the odds that they get a response and before seeing this data i had a prediction one in a billion one in a billion <laughs> like I, I i'm like come on you're not yeah. you know joe schmo is not going to get a response from uh someone really high up there and the data from two studies converges on 14 percent for men and about 35% for women, which is way higher than I would have thought. Now, of course, just getting a response isn't, you know, a marriage proposal or anything. Yeah. There are lots of steps to get rejected along the way. But I think clearly from that data, it shows that asking a lot is a huge advantage in dating. And yeah. if you're like me in my 20s, where I, I think I could count I'm a heterosexual. I think I count on one hand the number of women I asked out in my higher 20s. Yeah. Now, how is that for a strategy compared to asking out over the course of my 20s, let's say 300 women? Yeah. But obviously, the person who asked 300 women, is they're going to be rejected a lot. It's going to sting. But they're going to have a lot more chance to get lucky. And then eventually you meet someone and they say it was, it was luck. But it wasn't necessary. It was luck that we met, but it wasn't luck that you put yourself in that position to and ask that person yeah. out and it got the yes that eventually that uh it, you're not gonna be lucky if you're sitting in your apartment and not asking talking to anybody yeah. uh yeah. in dating. And that's that's a, it's it's similar in so many arenas of of life that being out and about, putting yourself out there, putting work in the world, uh risking rejection. Yeah. You're going to be a lot luckier if you do those things uh, yeah. like, without, yeah, I, 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 it's, it's proven in math. It's proven in data studies. It's proven any way you can think to prove it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So let me, let me ask you this. I'm going to tell you a quick story. All right. And I need your input because this is part of it. Like I have always been a guy who plays the numbers game, right? Like I'm the dude who back in my single days, it was, I, you know, I, I cast a wide net. You know, I played the odds. Sometimes I dated above me, you know, all sorts of stuff. Cool. But like, I've done it with everything. Uh, when I've been out of work, right? Like 
I don't just apply to one job. I apply to a ton of jobs, right? There were there there have been points where I had more interviews than I can go to. Like I am very much like that. And you know, uh, especially when I got sober and I was working in an addiction treatment center, I would teach people this stuff. I'm like, hey, the more you do, the more opportunities you have. Because a lot of people trying to get back up on their feet, all sorts of stuff. So I've done that in many realms. But here's my question: because you talked about creativity and art and success. So Seth, I need your help out on this one, all right? So let's look at my YouTube channel, right? I made like 15, 1600 videos in the course of a year or two. Sometimes I was doing like multiple videos a day. It was crazy. And, you know, my, my channel grew pretty decently, but there's other people obviously who have like 100 or 200 videos in five years. They're just they in the stratosphere, right? But, uh, you know, the podcast is a great example. I just celebrated a year of this podcast. I have over 160 episodes, right? I also read an insane number of books and from a variety of different topics. So when we're talking numbers and variety, almost like you're talking about like artists going to different galleries and stuff. So I'm diversifying too. Anyway, Seth, why am I not a millionaire yet? Since I, <laughs> I produce the quantity, I diversify. So what would, what would you say? Am I just following in that like, narrow percentage of people no the the key there there was one word that was key to your question yet ah so uh you know i think uh you have uh you 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 know these things build over time and i talk about i have a chapter the long boring slog of success oh yeah. and the successful entrepreneurs are 45 i didn't even talk about it. you know this most common aid for a best-selling first, a best-selling novelist, first-time best-selling novelist is I think 47. Oh, wow. So you got, everyone wants it to happen overnight and you're building, you know, momentum and you're building fans and you're building connections and you're doing the things that, you know, the data, you know, the data recommends. Now, of course it could be life is, you know, I, I, I suggest, I say in my book that being an independent creative may not be as bad a bet as I thought. When people yeah. ask me before doing this, uh, before writing my book, should you try to be what you're doing, independent creative, what I'm doing, independent creative, I say, no, 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 you're going to be broke. You're going to be living on the, the street. Uh, but I actually, this, this paper I talk about, Capitalist 21st Century, they look at tax records and there are about 10,000 independent creatives in the top 1% of, of income, which is really good. You know, yeah. if, if you're an independent creative in the top 1% of income, you're living the dream because you're doing yeah. what you love and you're earning a uh, top one, you're in a one in a hundred income. And, you know, so, so there are a couple of things I take about that. It's not as crazy a uh, bet as I would have thought, but it's still a bet. Yeah. Uh, so you're not talking about a 50% shot, an 80% shot, a 90% shot. You know, if you do everything right, you might be talking about a 10% shot. Yeah. So you're still, you still gotta be, you, you can't do it expecting to, to enter the top 1% of mm-hmm. the independent creative. You have to be, you have to say, I want, I love it so much that I give it my shot and do all the things that I'm suggest that, that, uh, that the data suggests. And then you gotta kind of like. And then you got to decide how long you're going to try it for yeah. and, uh, go for it. Yeah. You can't, I mean, it's just, it's not a guarantee because so many people want it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, 
it's 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 been it's been kind of interesting too because as i like verbalize it you know and i look like in the grand scheme of things i'm doing fantastic right like uh because i've been able to live off of just my independent creation right multiple times you know like it paid me as much in some case in certain periods paid me even more than like the best jobs i ever had right and things like that but yeah the as far as the opportunities like i could definitely agree to that like i have people who have asked me like other podcasters like how'd you get like such big authors on your podcast right i'm like because I ask everybody, you know, yeah, yeah, I just, yeah. I just reach out. Like I went out and I bugged you, I tagged you on Twitter and stuff. That's just like what I'm doing. I increase those, those numbers. That's a, that's a massively underrated life strategy is, which I, I do. A, I'm also pretty good at that. Not as good as I could be, but, uh, asking people, yeah. <laughs> uh, putting yourself out there, risking yeah. what, getting And what know. situations do you, do you do that? Is it with like interviewing people or people who did the research? How does that work? Yeah, Adrian people, uh, I mean, I'm thinking more over the course of my life as, mm. uh, like, but there are lots of one-offs. So everybody lies. My first book, Steven Pinker did me a huge, uh, mitzvah and he wrote the forward for my book and yeah. everyone's like, how did Steven Pinker write forward for your book? And I was writing an article that had nothing to do with anything Steven Pinker research and I emailed him the article to ask if he could comment and it led to us kind of you know taking a liking to each other which one thing led to another and then and then which one thing led to another then I actually took a train to Boston and asked him in person if he'd agree to write the forward that's uh, awesome. which is you know very aggressive and uh I think yeah it's it's not a lot of people wouldn't have done that. Yeah. I think most people wouldn't have done that. Very few people would have done that. So that's, uh, that's something that, yeah, it's, I, I'm, I'm pretty unshy. Uh, even some of these studies, like other people have read about these studies, mm. but the real juicy stuff in the studies is in the appendices. <laughs> and really? usually it's very hard to figure out what's going on. So for the study on marriage, uh, on relationships, I, I did talk to, you know, I reached out to Samantha Joel and she kind of directed me to mm. where the juicy material was. Otherwise, because a, a lot of people have read about this study and it's not really, it, it's not, it's the way the paper describes it uh, isn't quite as compelling as I think the actual study is. Mm. So uh, things like that I do all the time. Yeah. Uh, and, but I have, it's, it's kind of hard. You take, sometimes you take, there, there was a period where I was really good in it at putting myself out there. And now I'm just, I feel like I'm a little bit less good than I used to be. Uh, you get a little lazy sometimes. And <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely do the same thing. I'm like, why am I getting any opportunities? And then I, you know, it's like, well, you know, last year I was sending out hundreds of these emails and now I'm sending like 50, you know, yeah. and I recognize, but it, it's kind of good. Like, because you, you start to realize what's in your control and things like that. So you can turn up the volume on how many attempts. And everything. And uh, I, I can't remember in your book, did you reference, or I don't know if you've read uh, the work of Richard Wiseman? He wrote that book, The Luck Factor. No, I didn't talk about it. Oh, oh, you might dig it. Well, he, he like researches like the psychology of luck and everything, but there's different studies where they talk about, uh, you know, like I, I think it was, you know, giving people an impossible puzzle, right? 
and the people who perceive themselves as lucky, they just tried longer, right? So it's just kind of like those types of things. And I have a 13 year old son and I'll teach him things about that. I teach him about playing the numbers game and, you know, trying all these different things. And it's just, it's kind of helped a little bit, but you know, that brings me to another question. Uh, at the beginning, we were talking about how like an intellectual, a data guy shouldn't really like self-help books. So I'm curious, like what, what is it or what do you take from them? Because, uh, for example, I turn to them, like sometimes it's just good to get a kick in the ass, right? Or sometimes it's good to just hear something motivational, inspirational, whatever it is, even though I'm like, ah, this story might be complete bullshit, right? But uh, what do you personally like about these books and not feel like, oh, I shouldn't be reading this, but you read them anyways? Well, I think I need a lot of help. Uh, <laughs> that's why in theory, they're great because you talk about addiction. I struggled. I admit in the book that I struggled with depression for mm -hmm. uh, basically uh, most of my adult life. And I was reading tons of books on depression because I needed the help. But you know, depression books, depression self-help books, they always get distracted by just wallowing a bit. <laughs> yeah. I, which I think doesn't help depressives. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. thinking of writing a book just about the data on depression, because yeah. I think I have a lot to say on that topic. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't, when I was single, you want to know, I think most single people want to know, how can I date better, have better options, mm -hmm. or, uh, what should I look for in a partner? All, all these questions that are very, and I think that is, I think anybody would have a draw to improving themselves fixing their problems. Uh, so yeah. I think the, the interest in self help is naturally, I think it just has a bad name for no particular yeah. reason, which is why I want to write a self-help book. And most people, when they write self-help book, they, they're like, if an intellectual writes a self-help book, they say it's, se it's self-help for people who wouldn't be caught dead reading self-help. So they're kind of, they're, they're bit, they say the reviews say that this is secretly self-help, but the author doesn't admit it's self-help because they're above self-help. Yeah. And I kind of decided, no, I'm just going to own this. So my first chapter, <laughs> I call it self-help for data geek. Yeah. I have no problem. I, I don't see for the life of me why self-help shouldn't be intellectual. There's nothing less intellectual about self-help than any other, uh, in, there's nothing inherently less intellectual about self-help than any other genre. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's a natural draw. And you see the data. I think I talked about the study that they looked at the top underlined sentences in a large sample of Amazon Kindle books. And the biggest predictor of a sentence being underlined is it has the word you in it. Yeah. Uh, so people really like you know, things that relate to themselves. Yeah. And, uh, if I, you look at the best-selling books of all time, the number one category by far is self-help, uh, best-selling mm -hmm. nonfiction books. Uh, so I'm not alone in, and you're not, we're not alone yeah. in our draw to self-help and it shouldn't be embarrassing. Like it shouldn't be, there's nothing wrong. I, there's not learning what predicts a good romantic partner. Why is that less intellectual than learning about 17th century yeah. France? There's nothing yeah. less intellectual than that. There's no reason I should be yeah. embarrassed to 
study those topics or write I, about I those like topics. You, 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 you talked, I, I, I dig it. I like how you, you phrase this because that's something that I look at. Like when, uh, like I've, like I've just self-published some stuff, uh, on like mental health and, you know, just my personal experience and everything like that. And, you know, I, I, I don't even like saying self-help, but it's, for one, like you're talking about, like, I feel like it's like, you know, like intellectual people will look at it, but also sometimes I, I get concerned that the genre has been kind of muddied a little bit. I don't know if you, you think that too. And like, I think one example is everything that blew up with the secret and the law of attraction. Like, I feel like maybe, maybe that's what it is, or maybe it's just in my own head. But do you think that there's certain aspects? Because it is the best-selling, but if you look like at some of the best-selling books, some of them go off into woo-woo, like really far away from the science. So do you think that might be a part of it? Yeah, I think I, I, I'm i trying, I'm not, sometimes I get a little grandiose uh, in, my, in my books, but I would say I'm trying to, uh, make self-help respectable for intellectuals. And yeah, uh, they're, they're, if you do research on say habit formation or parenting or dating, there's nothing wrong with writing a book entirely on how people can develop better habits or be better parents or date better. That's mm -hmm. a totally reasonable book to write. You're the expert on the topic and don't think you need to be, there's nothing to be ashamed about just telling people how to make better decisions. It's a great service. How it improves the world. If you can actually, you know, I'm just thinking when I'm writing this book, when I'm in the section on happiness, yeah. If I convince a few people to make decisions that are more likely to make them happy, how that's a huge service. Yeah. Right. Isn't that, yeah. isn't that I, if I, if I convince a few people are perpetually single to look at the data of what actually makes people happy in a relationship and focus more on those qualities in their dating life. Mm. That's a huge service. So I don't yeah. know. I know that I, I, there's something weird about, I, I don't know where self-help got this reputation of being kind yeah. of silly or below intellectuals, but I've never, I've never understood it. I've always loved self-help books. Yeah. I, I guess, I, yeah, I guess my criticism is because it was considered so intellectual, we let self-help to the non-intellectuals and we yeah. let self-help to the woo-woo crowd. That, the, now, that is, we need to frame that quote somewhere. Yeah. Right there. Because I, I forget where I was reading it, but it was talking about how like philosophy, like that was like the original self-help, right? Like yeah. you look at stoicism and, and all of those types of things. But yeah, absolutely. There's so many books and just like giving somebody just a little bit, it makes the world a better place overall you know what i mean but you know uh something something i did want to ask you like with with relationships and just maybe you can say this a little bit better than i can but uh here's what i got from the data on relationships and what makes a happy long-term relationship i would summarize it as and it seems like it's something that you know helped me was like work on you first, right? Like be content. Don't find some, don't, don't do the Jerry Maguire, find somebody to complete you, like get yourself together. Like, for example, for me, one of the best things I ever did was just be single for like a year and a half and just have a total break. Cause I was like, Oh, I can be alone. And I worked on myself and all these other things. And, and 
it helped me out in future relationships. I've had the best relationship of my life. But anyways, is that what we gathered from the data? Like fix you first. Don't look for someone to fix you because that doesn't work out too well. Yeah. And there are basically three things I took from the data. And this is the Joel and co-author study that I referenced earlier. One relationship happiness is incredibly hard to predict, surprisingly hard to predict. So you could mm. imagine you had a data set, 11,000 couples, 100 variables uh, on each of them, and you put it into a machine learning model. It's just like, wow, these, you know, there, there have even been these famous examples that I think are probably just wrong, where John Gottman said he could predict with 90% accuracy who's going to stay married, who's not oh, going to stay yeah. married. Yeah. You could imagine you just, you plug these numbers into your model, uh, you got your random forest, and you're just like, okay, these are good relationships, these are bad relationships, we've solved it. And it's not like that at all. It's much more, le much less like predicting the weather tomorrow and much more mm. like predicting the weather in three weeks. Mm. Uh, it's much more chaotic. Uh, that's point number one. Now, point number two is the one you mentioned that if there's anything that predicts romantic happiness, it's happiness outside your relationship. So clear justification of the data for your approach, work on yourself first, read the self-help on happiness and <laughs> depression and uh, these qualities, because, and that's certainly been true in my experience where I put a, I finally put a lot of work into my depression. It was in a much better mental state by the time I met mm. my girlfriend and could be ha happy in a relationship, which, whereas I don't think I could have been uh, five to 10 years ago when I was lying in bed depressed all day. Yeah. Uh, and that's point number two. And point number three is if there's anything else that predicts from what, if there's anything in your partner that's going to up the odds of success and they're not predict, they're not hugely predictive, but if there's anything that ups the odds that you're going to be happy in a long-term relationship with a partner, it's psychological traits, conscientiousness, growth mindset, secure attachment style, uh, satisfaction with life. Yeah. And not the superficial traits that everybody's competing over, uh, beauty and height and yeah. occupations. So, uh, those are kind of, those are the three big findings. They all have, I would argue, profound, uh, implications for how we should approach dating. Uh, and it basically suggests that we're all dating completely wrong. Uh, yeah. or most of us are dating completely wrong. We're, yeah. Yeah, it, it's crazy just even uh, just running back through that because it made me think like because when I was younger, I was always I was always looking for, uh, you know, like uh, even though I, w I wasn't fully conscious of it, but I was looking for broken women to date so I can like fix them. Right. It's like no wonder why it didn't go well, because they weren't in that you know position. But we swoop in and we're like, oh, I can help. And I, I, I could do a whole nother episode about this, but that's that's what happens a lot in TV and movies, right? There's like some broken individual and someone swoops in, tries to help them. And like, it, it actually works out well in movies a lot. And I'm like, no, that's not, that's not how it is. You know, No, that's not so, a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it can be a little mean because what does it mean if, does that mean, what should, what should we do with the women and men who aren't conscientious and don't have a growth mindset and aren't satisfied with yeah. life and don't have a secure attachment style? There is something nice about some people willing to date them anyway. Uh, yeah. You know, like I, it, it's, it's going to be yeah. make you less happy, but, uh, on, on average dating someone with a insecure attachment style, but yeah. 
Yeah, I uh, I actually just just yesterday because it's Mental Health Awareness Month. I did a presentation at at my job, and it was more about work life balance. But anyways, what I was talking about something I realized is I have to take care of myself. So I'm a good boyfriend. I'm a good father. I'm a good son. Right. So so yeah, like when it's like, oh, should we just not date these people? Because I don't even like that idea. Like, oh, just don't date people like that. But it's like, I, I guess what I tried to start doing is like if this person is in that position, right? And I'm, I'm attracted to them or think that, you know, we have common interests, like, are they in a place where they're willing to work on themselves? Like, is that even yeah. on their radar? Yeah. You know, like if I met somebody and they're like, yeah, I've been going to therapy and, you know, or whatever it is, or like, yeah, I go to yoga or yeah, I like to play sports or hobbies or whatever it is. I'm like, okay, you're like on the path. Like at least, yeah. at least you're on the road and you're not like way out here. Uh, I know you're not a, a date. This is, book isn't all about dating, but what do you think about that? If you had a friend, right? And they're like, hey, met this person. They're a little, they're a little, they're a little sad and things like that, but they're on the track. What would you, would you recommend? Like, hey, yeah, give it a well, try. What's the, the other thing say? from dating is when you actually look at, let's say you start. Okay. So there's, there are two questions. Predict happiness at a point in time in a relationship and predict changes in happiness. Mm. So let's say, okay, I, and you ask me, how happy are you in your relationship? I say, I'm seven out of 10. And then two years later, you say, how happy are your relationship? And I say, I'm a 10 out of 10 or a four out of 10. Now let's try to predict those changes in relationships. Mm. And those are impossible to predict, literally yeah. impossible. So it, you are, if you're a 10 out of 10, you're more likely to be a 10 out of 10 in the future. If you're a one out of 10 now, you're more likely to be a one out of 10 in the future. So if you're unhappy now, you're more like stay happy. You're unhappy now. You're way more likely to stay unhappy. But beyond that, there's no predictive power in anything, even these psychological traits. So yeah. when I sit counsel a person who's dating someone who maybe doesn't have a secure attachment style, is if they're happy with them, then good for you. Uh, you know, if it makes you happy, it makes you happy. That's all we, you can do. Yeah. So be, when if if the person's just starting their search. I'd say probably focus more on people with better psychological traits, uh, because you're more likely to find someone who's going to make you happy. But, uh, once they're in that relationship, I counsel them. If, if you're happy, you're happy. That's it. I don't care. Like he yeah. or she's a total, totally weird, totally different than I might imagine. She does, he or she doesn't speak the same language as you. Uh, yeah. they've been depressed. They're, str they're recovering it alcoholic they're alcoholic they're this they're that you're happy you're happy that's that's mm. all that you can really use to make that yeah uh decision so yeah no hey i i i, I like that answer you know but uh with with just a little bit more of your time seth i cannot let you leave here without asking you a question about your last book all right so i feel Reading your book just ruined so many things for me. Like, I don't trust a single poll. I don't trust a single survey, right? Because I'm like, whenever I see it, they're like, oh, they pulled these people. They surveyed these people. Here's what they think, whether it's about politics or happiness or just anything. And I'm like, they could be lying to you. They could just be lying and just fill it out. But people trust them so much. So anyways, anyway, Seth, I need to know from you, how do you navigate the world when you're seeing this stuff? all the time, right? Is there a single poll that you trust? Is there a single survey that you trust? Like, I need you to help me regain just yeah, a there little is, bit of sanity. There is some information in surveys. Uh, so you've even seen that in predicting elections. So people uh, make fun of 
Nate Silver for saying Trump only had a 28% chance of winning and ended up winning. But if you actually look at the data, the state level polling was fairly predictive of actual results. There's definitely information surveys. You just have to give it a little bit of a grain of salt if it's on a, you have to take it with a grain of salt if it's on a sensitive topic. So, mm. you know, asking people, uh, yeah, yeah, no, asking people in Russia right now what you think of the war. Yeah. Uh, when they know that they're scared that if they say they hate the war, they're going to, someone's going to show up at their yeah. door. You're ask, asking people about human sexuality or. Yeah. There are definitely so, areas where, yeah. sir, I, I, I didn't want everybody lies to ruin surveys for people. I just wanted <laughs> to say that we have all these new tools where you could supplement them and get more accurate information, but it doesn't mean that you should always ignore everything a survey is telling you, Yeah, uh, but, uh, they just know that there is this tendency for social desirability bias. And yeah, you know, it's interesting. Even the happiness stuff you mentioned, I, I talk about this project mappiness and they ping people, their iPhones, they ask you them who they're with, mm. what, uh, what they're doing, how happy they are. The happiest activity is having sex, which. I thought it was kind of pretty obvious, but I talked to a brilliant psychoanalyst friend of mine and psychoanalysts always have interesting theories. And yeah, he says he doesn't actually think that the average person is happy having sex and that because it's really interesting that, uh, they may feel like they should say they're happy because everyone knows that yeah. sex is something that makes people happy. But if you actually went into their brain, uh, the average person uh, it, their relationship to sex is pretty complicated where, yeah. uh, there's a lot of, a lot of people are in their own head, uh, playing out trauma from childhood and, yeah. uh, it's, it's a little more complex than, uh, the data would suggest. It's very interesting. Uh, yeah. I still kind of think on average, it's probably, I got to think it's giving people more pleasure than other activities yeah. just because we've evolved. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, well, I think that people having an orgasm or really that it seems they're pretty happy I yeah would think. well you you brought up an interesting point not to spoil that chapter but you're like you're like how how happy could they be if they're like reaching for their phone to answer a survey in the middle of the <laughs> right. and I was like that i was like hey that's that's a good point so but but yeah there are different things to take into consideration but but one last thing it's a quick answer what what's a good sample size for you seth like when we're talking about surveys or polls, because when I see like, oh, we, we surveyed like a thousand people. I'm like, well, the United States has 330 million people. So a thousand is nothing. They're like, well, we got different ages and we got, we, we did this kind of randomized thing. I'm just like, well, still, like, can we really assume that this whole chunk of people is representative of an entire population? So what's a good sample size? If I'm looking at a polar survey, what should I look at? I think it depends. It totally depends what you're trying to do with it. Mm. If you're trying to zoom in and see what's happening in Connecticut or among 20 to 30 year olds, then you need a much bigger sample size than just saying averages. Uh, but I think sample size is not as big an issue as the quality of the survey and where they're mm. getting the sample. So if the sample is a biased sample, it doesn't matter how big the sample is, you're still gonna have a biased outcome. Uh, so th there's not a one size, it's, it's not, a, it, there's not some yeah. point where the sample gets big enough. It really depends on the question, but. Yeah. Just, I guess everybody lies, tries to teach people to be, uh, 
Yeah. More dubious. Yeah, of, yeah, it, uh, that, it definitely helped there. And I, I'm actually going to go back and reread it because maybe I'm just, I'm, I'm misremembering it, my my trauma from reading your book. <laughs> no, but, uh, but yeah, but Seth, thank you so much for coming on. I, I love your book so much. I, I hope you write another one. I think the depression topic would be really interesting because I've read a lot of books about like the data around like antidepressants and stuff. So I think there's some stuff that would be interesting to write about that. Anyway, anyway, Seth, where can people find the book? And where can people find you and keep up to date with stuff you're doing in between books? Uh, my Twitter profile is at Seth at underscore D. And uh, the book is Don't Trust Your Gut, which you can just search Amazon. There's another book, Don't Trust Your Gut, but I think you'll figure out which one it is. It has a rainbow fish on it. Uh, and then Everybody Lies. So, uh, yeah. Beautiful. I, I love it, Seth. I'll link all that down below. And and yeah, uh, maybe when you write the next book, we could do this again. For sure. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Seth. I loved chatting with it. Like I said, like I love both of his books and I just want him to keep writing more and more and more. And by the way, there's so much more covered in this book. Uh, like, there's so many things, right? And I promise like you will gain a ton of value. It'll help you start rethinking the way we, you know, uh, move forward with our lives and tackle different challenges and problems. And, you know, uh, because a big part of, you know, what I, I try to cover with this podcast, with the books I read is like problem solving and decision-making, right? But, you know, one of the reasons I love Seth's books is because we we're making so many bad decisions based on conventional wisdom, right? So with Seth's work, we can help we can help ourselves when we start making different types of decisions, like uh, how to raise our kids, how we uh, move forward with our jobs, our careers, uh, and our relationships, so many different things. So make sure that you grab a copy of this book. Again, Seth's book is out now. Never trust your gut. I have it linked down in the description below and make sure you're following Seth. I have a social media link down there as well all right but anyways uh yeah before i let you go a few things um make sure you're following me over on instagram and twitter at the rewired soul again love chatting with all of you and this way you don't make miss any updates uh next week i have a pretty big update coming out all right so you don't want to miss it i'll share it on social media but if you're following or subscribed to the podcast like i know you are because you love it here uh i'll be posting that update slash announcement here as well all right but follow me on instagram and twitter at the rewired soul and yeah if you want to subscribe to me over on youtube as well because i'm gonna be uploading there probably the next week or two i actually just got a new mic it should be here tomorrow and it's specifically for some youtube content that i'll be making all right so make sure you follow me and yeah another huge thanks to seth for coming on the podcast make sure you head down to the description uh grab a copy of never trust your gut make sure you're following seth over on social media and yeah um one last thing uh because uh you know seth and i did discuss like mental health and everything like that uh if you are interested down in the description below there is an affiliate link for better help online therapy something that's helped me out a ton a ton with my sobriety with my mental health is therapy and i've personally used better help so if you're interested in convenient online therapy that is super affordable Head down to the description and check out that affiliate link. All right. 
But anyways, uh, yeah, I hope you all have an amazing rest of your day. I hope you grab Seth's book. I promise it'll help you out. But yeah, until then, I will see you next time. <laughs>